I would say that when we choose to look for the good, we see what God sees. We see stuff that maybe nobody else sees because they haven't paid the price to see it. We um, see with kindness and pure knowledge. We see beyond the ordinary behaviors and attitudes and, and appearances, and we, we see the heart of the person. And we love that about them because they have, in the course of marriage, opened their heart to us, and we choose to remember that even in times of irritation. Welcome to the podcast with Dr. Wally, a fresh view on gospel living. Today we are talking about one of my favorite topics. As you might know, Dr. Wally has written several books and even a textbook I was lucky enough to use in undergrad about marriage and family relationships. He's done years of research on the topic. Wally is going to talk to us about the surprising results of that research and the path to a happy marriage. Now, I must say that the sound quality on this episode is not what we normally have. Unfortunately, there are some pops going on that we didn't know about until we were done recording, but the content is just too good to go to waste. I know that you'll enjoy this episode, so let's get to it. Hello there. My name is Emily McIntosh. I'm Wally Goddard. Thanks again for being with us today. Wally and I sat down a little while back to outline the topics for the episodes, and I've been really looking forward to this one. We're calling it The Surprising Path to a Happy Marriage. Wally, <laughs> share with us this surprising path to a happy marriage. I know you have some principles laid out for us to learn, and I'm just really excited. Yeah, I, I think there are six principles that we ought to talk about, and uh, each is important. And, it, and the first one, the first one is that um, we bring much more to marriage when we ourselves are happy. And we, we talk about happiness elsewhere, so Maybe we don't want to take a long time to talk about all the principles of happiness. But, but when we think about a happy marriage, um, it, we should start by saying if we're miserable, sad, confused, frustrated, disappointed, it's just going to be harder to have a great marriage. And if in contrast, we're happy with life and growing and feeling like our lives are purposeful, then uh, we're much more likely to have a strong relationship. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So that's the first principle would be happiness. And if you didn't listen to our past episode about happiness, go back and listen to that one. That would be a really great place to yes. start. Okay. So talk to us about the second one. Second principle. Let's introduce the idea with uh, a metaphor, the metaphor of a garden. Let's imagine that um, I've been looking at catalogs of uh, gardens and seeds and I think, oh man, that is what I want. I want this beautiful green place that has such beauty and produces wonderful fruit. And uh, that's that's what I really want. So I head down to the seed store and I um, build several bags with seed. I get a whole bunch of this, that, and the other. And then imagine that I uh, head home, Emily, and I, I open the back door and I take my bags with me and I reach into those bags and get handfuls of seed and I throw it out into the backyard. <laughs> a little bit of this that way, and a little bit of that the other way, and maybe some uh, strawberry seeds over there, and a few tomato mm -hmm. seeds in the middle. So I throw the seeds out and then smile and uh, think, wow, I'm going to come back in two or three months, and it's going to be wonderful. What do you think, Emily? <laughs> How are they going to pay off? Wally, well, it sounds like you've been learning your gardening uh, tactics from me <laughs> is what it sounds like. I, I <laughs> That's about how I would approach gardening. And, and so far, it hasn't worked so well for me. So 
you could probably teach me some some uh, tips on gardening too. What are you going to teach us with this? Yeah, yeah. Actually, my wife is an expert gardener. She really is very, very patient, very careful, very mindful. She watches those plants and is very tuned into them. So the first application of that to marriage is uh, commitment. Commitment. It's it's the the real focus, the real dedication and devotion. It's the the thinking about and being deliberate, intentional, planful in the way we grow our relationship. Sometimes we uh, take the model of dating as our guide for sustaining a marriage, and dating is really different. You know, it's all about uh, fun stuff and getting to know each other and feeling flattered that someone else is so interested and thinks so highly of us. That's fine, but it's not a very good predictor for decades of marriage being happy. It's uh, it's just going to be uh, an easy thing. And then comes the work of making that garden. It's kind of like dating is kind of like looking at the seed catalog. You go through the catalog and get ideas mm. and visions and see possibilities. But wow, really creating a great garden takes time. And and I would say that that's, um, that's not just time. It's also our heart and mind. It requires that we... That we really be attentive, that we that we pay attention, and that we be devoted. Um, sometimes when we think about devotion in marriage, we think, well, you know, I'm showing up. I I come home from work at night. I'm I'm here, and and it's a lot more than that, isn't it? It's it's bringing bringing our heart, bringing our thoughts, bringing our our soul. And I think in the principles we talk about yet ahead, it'll be even more obvious how uh, commitment is really uh, bringing our whole souls to, to this relationship. It, it's Commitment is foundational. Commitment is, um, is the key to getting us off on the right foot, that we, that we really are invested in this and are willing to make the efforts necessary. Does that make sense to you, Emily? It does. And I'm just thinking about how, how that is such a foundational principle. I think one for me, I mean, I'm thinking about how many marriage courses and classes and things there are out there. And, and I think it's real easy to want to just take a class and like, oh, I'm going to fix my marriage and it's going to happen in a day. And what I'm hearing you say is this commitment principle, this foundational principle is that we we're really going to have to be patient with the process, patient with ourselves, patient with our, our uh, partners, our families, because yeah, yeah, these yeah. kinds of changes aren't going to happen overnight. <laughs> Is that what I'm hearing you say? And so when we plant a garden, we have to nurture it and, um, and tend to it and be patient with the time. And we, it's not like a lot of things in our society these days where, where we can stick something in a microwave and it's done in 30 seconds. <laughs> oh, good, good comparison. Yeah, this isn't a a microwave project, is it? This is more like, a, well, cooking a roast overnight. That may not be quite the right metaphor. In a but, slow cooker. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it is a commitment. I, I mean, maybe the gardening is still the the best metaphor because, yeah. um, um, like, I, I admire how Nancy is out every day just checking, and she looks for. You know, I tend to just flood things with water, and then. And then figure that they're going to turn out fine. But she's she's checking to see when they need water and how much. And she's 
watching for pests. And she does those things that really um, that really tend to her garden. That same kind of attention is so valuable in a relationship, a loving relationship. And and that takes a lot of different forms. You know, for for some people, that may mean that they surrender a little bit of, um, you know, maybe they love sports. Maybe they love reading more than anything else. And uh, commitment sometimes includes making sacrifices. Um, it also includes um, accepting influence. That's one of the principles discovered in research that when instead of just saying, hey, my way is a good way and you ought to you ought to accept that. You ought to value me the way I am. Sometimes we accept influence when um, our spouse says, hey, this is really important to me. Then instead of uh, trying to convince them that they're mistaken, we, uh, we respect that. We, um, maybe we show, show that that's important to us because it is important to them. Mm. Accepting influence. Wow. That's, that can be a really, (laughs) a really hard one. I mean, I'm just thinking about, um, is there a way to tell when is an appropriate time to really assess? This is a, this is a situation where it really doesn't matter how something is done. Like I'm thinking of a case study that I read of, of a husband and wife and, and the husband wanted to make a purchase that was, it was an expensive purchase and the wife didn't think that was a good idea. And so at what point in a situation like that, do we accept influence or how can you do that when you feel like it's high stakes? Is that maybe a weird question to ask? Well, that's a great question. And one that I think a lot of us face, and maybe we decide together that um, certain kinds of decisions, you know, like um, what each of us has for lunch is not, does not require some confer- conferencing together. You know, each of us has latitude on some small decisions. But when there's a decision that affects both people, um, maybe there's uh, more discussion and, and more willingness to delay a decision while you talk about it. Now, the reality of life is that... Um, we enter relationship with some people finding that extremely hard to do. And uh, the research says that women tend to accommodate far more than men do. Mm. And, and I'm not here to say that's fair. I don't, I don't think that's right. Men tend to, you know, bulldoze their way down the path thinking I'm going where I want to go and I'll push anything out of my way. That's not true of every man. But on average, it describes men better than women. So, you know, when the man decides, I'm going to buy that boat, um, you know, the wife has to assess, um, hey, dear, is this something we can talk about? Would you be willing to tell me about what you love about the boat? And then would you be willing to have a continuing conversation about how we use it and where we'll keep it and and how that fits into our long-term plan? And And so sometimes we start out with that soft approach that says, can we talk about this, as opposed to the frontal assault that says, you idiot, how could you do this to me and to our family? Mm. Um, So there isn't an easy answer. The fact is that you uh, negotiate and you work on it together and try to find a way to get to uh, better understanding, better negotiation. And it sounds to me like that's going to take practice. This, this, uh, <laughs> it's a skill, right? To be able to negotiate yeah. and have those conversations. And so developing that skill 
again, we need to be patient with the process. And, and I love this, that you, you mentioned the soft startup, um, that it's important to having those conversations, this soft startup. Maybe for our listeners, can you explain what that is, a soft startup? Sure. Sometimes, um, well, on average, relationships are likely to be initiated by the female. And um, often they may say, there's something we need to talk about, which makes men very anxious. Their heart rate goes through the roof. And men don't tend to be, and humans in general, don't tend to be great negotiators when they feel attacked, when they feel like they're going to be humiliated and told what's wrong with them. So um, soft startup is really about finding a way that allows both of you to be talking about the subject without either of you feeling attacked. So uh, the Council for Women that comes from Gottman's research is um, women can soften the startup and men can look past the edge in their partner's voice. They can self-soothe. They can try to keep themselves calm. Um, and, and, you know, Emily, it, to make a, a larger point about the challenge for both people, um, both of us have to decenter. We have assumptions about how things ought to be, and we bring our way of doing things to the relationship. And when we get out of ourselves as the center of every discussion, every assumption, and can can make it a, 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 um, a, a dyadic, a pair discussion and we work together. Wow. That's, that is the work of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's really helpful. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. So you're talking about in this principle of commitment, we're, um, we're accepting influence from our partner. We're, we're being patient with the process. What else do we need in terms of, um, thinking about this, this principle of commitment? You know, um, when I think about commitment, there's another part we really haven't mentioned, which is we have to prevent other things from encroaching on our, our time and hearts. Sometimes we start loving our hobby. We start loving our friends. We start loving a coworker more than we love our marriage. And um, that's a problem. That's a problem when we let something else start occupying space, not only in our time, but also in our hearts. So part of commitment is um, I intend to make my family a first priority, and, and I'll show that not only in my time, not only in my speech, but um, also in my heart. I don't let my um, commitment to my family be crowded out by other affections. Mm. So it's really about where we're investing our not only our time, but our energy yeah. and that heart space. And you know, Emily, I don't think I don't think our society teaches us that at all, and in fact, teaches us the opposite, mm-hmm. which is uh, whatever you want, that's what you should have, and that is not really the right mindset for going into growing a garden or building a marriage. Well, I can see that maybe it's kind of a, a misguided way of teaching that principle of happiness that you mentioned, the first principle of happiness, this idea of, okay, I, I need to be taking care of myself. And I think that that is important, but the pendulum can possibly swing the other direction is what I'm hearing, like it, it, to the point of selfishness. Is that? Yeah, we ought to sometime have a discussion, maybe a podcast about that whole idea. The American assumption is that self-hate and self-love are opposites and self-hate is so destructive mm. and clearly the path to good health is self-love. And the fact is um, that's not well supported by research. A better notion, I think, is that rather than self-hate or self-love is self-forgetfulness. It's about being able to get outside the relationship 
and, and be an observer, a kind, a compassionate and wise observer who can say, you know, I'm probably being a little unrealistic here. I'm, I'm catching him in a bad time, or I am making some assumptions that aren't quite fair. And, and being willing to then patiently enter the relationship and open a discussion and even an action. Not everything has to be talked about. Some things I just need to, um, I need to recognize that maybe, you know, if Nancy is tired, maybe this isn't a good time to have this discussion about boats. Not that Nancy wants a boat, but, you know, we, we, um, when we move outside of just our own perspective, when we can take that outside perspective, we're really setting the stage for being able to be a better partner. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. Yeah. Let's talk about that on a future yes. podcast episode because that that is a whole nother road that I think would be beneficial and relevant to this conversation, but it requires probably some more, more time to really get into that. There's a lot we can say about it. Yeah. Yeah. So we've got happiness. We've got commitment. Is there anything else you wanted to say about commitment before we move on? I think we ought to talk about nurture. What do you think? Yeah. Let's do that. Okay. Now we're really um, to the heart of the relationship. Uh, if we think about the garden metaphor again, uh, the key to having a really vibrant garden, whether it's great, beautiful flowers or whether it's um, fruit and vegetables, uh, whatever it is, the key is that, um, that we take care of it consistently, that we uh, water and fertilize, we care for it in a way that's sensitive to it and, it, and its needs, the, the garden and its needs. And, um, and sometimes in our marriages, we don't think about actively nurturing them. We don't think about really focusing on what's valuable to our partner and delivering that. I can give you my own example, Emily. When, when Nancy and I married, uh, I assumed that the best way to show her love is the way everyone likes to be loved, which is by buying her stuff. <laughs> I love stuff in virtually all forms, as anyone who's been in our home can attest. Um, it's we have storage rooms for storage rooms. You know, we just have lots of stuff, and I and I love it. And um, and so I bought Nancy stuff, and and expected her to just beam and say, "Honey, I can see you love me." But Nancy didn't. Nancy didn't cherish all this stuff. Back sometimes she'd say, "Well, thank you, Wally," but. I don't need that. And I'd say, honey, don't be funny. Um, we, we can take this and put it in storage along with my stuff and you can be happy. <laughs> um, there was one of us who was clueless and probably is still clueless. And it honestly, Emily, took me 27 years by my actual calendar to say, you know, Wally, this has never worked very well. My Nancy stuff has not worked well. You know, I... I try to watch her when we're in a department store and see what she stares at. Maybe she lingers with her look at this dress. And so I go back later and buy it for her. And then when I give it to her, she says, honey, why did you give me that? And I said, I saw you. I saw you coveting it. And she says, honey, I was staring at that dress because it's weird. I don't want that. And, and so Nancy just approaches things differently. Um, her, her approach to being loved is different from the way I tend to be loved. So after 27 years, I said, okay, well, I get smart. What is it that has worked for Nancy? When have you seen Nancy glow at someone's expression of love? And I realized immediately that like when our children or our grandchildren give Nancy a note, um, when they, when they write a little note in, 
and draw her a picture, she just glows. And I thought, okay, okay, I can do that. I, I may not be very good at drawing pictures, but I can sure write a note. And having never been moderate in my life, I, <laughs> I went through my calendar for the entire previous year as we approached Christmas. I went through the calendar and itemized all these great experiences we'd had together. And I listed this, that, and the other. You know, back in January, we did this and we went there and we celebrated our anniversary. And I started listing all these experiences that Nancy and I had shared in the course of that year. And, and I created a pretty lengthy letter. And then I, um, I printed it out on really nice paper and folded it up, put it in an envelope and slipped it under the Christmas tree. When, when Christmas morning came, and our daughter Sarah was handing out the presents from under the tree. She handed to her mom this envelope with uh, Nancy's name on it. And Nancy thought this was odd, having not gotten a note uh, like this before at Christmas. And uh, she opened it. She unfolded and read, uh, Sweetheart, I am grateful that. And she started reading about our experiences. She had not gone be through more than a few sentences before the tears started streaming down her face. And she held up the letter. She said, Wally, this is what I really, really want. And I said, yeah, I know, dear. And there'll be some great sales after Christmas. <laughs> because even then, you know, I wasn't persuaded that she didn't really want stuff. Or maybe, maybe, uh, maybe it's just hard for us to really learn. So there are different ways of talking about languages of love. You know, there, there's this set of five languages. I like to use the three, show me, tell me, and touch me. And um, each of us has some unique set of, of ways we like to be loved. And when we notice that about each other, when we pay attention, then we get the notes to Sarah and, uh, and to Nancy, and we get time with Andy, and we, and we do what Emily needs, joining her in her projects for each member of the family we do something different and it's um and maybe this is the key point it's a sacrifice it's not as simple as just being willing to pay a chunk of money it requires that we pay attention which is a lot harder than paying money so yeah in nurture there are languages of love and it's i think a lifetime pursuit to to really discover and then continue to refine our sense of how to show love to our partner. Hmm. Hmm. I'm hearing you recognize that it's not always easy for us to speak our family members' languages of love. And I'm trying to think about what you said and, and what are, <laughs> we have a, a baby. This is a family show. So <laughs> I'll be editing probably most of this out. This little guy has some commentary. He wants to tell you what his language of love is. Yeah, I think he is telling me his language of love right now. His is to participate, probably. It's his voice heard. He wants <laughs> show me, tell me, yeah. touch me. What would listen to me be? Did that fall inside the? Yeah. Uh, wow. That's that's kind of a um, that might be a universal language. In fact, I've I've thought that in addition to the three custom languages, there might be two universal, which is taking time and showing understanding. I think those aren't as much customized as they are universal. Everybody wants to be understood. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And everybody wants people who value them enough to spend some time with them. Everybody wants someone who listens to what they care about and what they have to say. Mm, that makes sense. 
cool. Yeah, thanks for adding those. So I'm thinking about what you said and how even after Nancy said, Wally, this is what I want, you still were thinking, well, yeah, there's going to be great sales after Christmas. She'll she'll come around and she'll understand what she really wants <laughs> and stuff. And I just exactly. I'm, thinking, I'm just thinking about ways that I've I've done that for sure, yeah. for sure. And and probably our our listeners can can think of ways that they they uh, that that applies to them as well. You know, this process takes time, Emily. It doesn't, and and that's um that's part of the message of marriage is it doesn't happen easily. It doesn't, um, what we obtain too easily, we esteem too lightly is the classic phrase. And uh, something as cherished as love and companionship in marriage will not come on the cheap. It will demand the best of us. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, what else when it comes to nurturing? You know, I, uh, I like to think about the relationship. If we drew a big circle, a big circle uh, on our paper and said, okay, this is the stuff in our relationship. And I'd guess that on average, maybe we like 80% of our partner. Maybe there's 20% that irritates us, 20% we don't understand, 20% we wish would change. But 80% we're glad about, we're thankful for. And then there's that 20%. Now, my first question would be, Emily, which one do we tend to think about the most? The 20% for sure. And we hold up the, our discontents right up to our eyes, and then we can't see the rest of what we're grateful for. And, and yet, if we choose to do the other, if we choose to dwell on that 80% to be grateful for it and, and be appreciative for it, when we do that, what a, what a difference that makes. Now, um, I want to talk about just the 20% for a minute, that 20% that we don't like, the 20% of stuff that irritates us and bothers us and we don't understand. Um, John Gottman has, has said that approximately 70% of what you don't like is not going to change. 70% of what you don't like is not going to change. You can talk about it. You can go to therapy. You can be angry about it. You can do anything you want. You can threaten. But, 80, but approximately 70% of what you don't like is not going to change. 70% of the 20%. Exactly. So it's 14% of the total. 14%. Okay, gotcha. All right. And, and, uh, and, you know, sometimes we think, oh, well, I could create a spousal improvement project. I, you know, <laughs> I can tell my spouse what to do differently and how to think differently and how to feel more sensibly. Um, and that just simply doesn't work. In fact, as mad as we want to be about that um, 80% of the 20%, it's um, not going to, excuse me, the 70% of the 20% is not going to change. Now, some people would say, oh, yeah, but but there's 30% of what I don't like that could change. <laughs> and then um, there's another observation that applies there. John Gottman said, the only way to get your partner to change is by loving them the way they are. The only way to create change is by granting acceptance. Now, isn't that an ironic twist? Mm. The more we think about our spouse as a project or a, a teeming flaw colony, as Dave Barry speaks of it, the more we think of our spouse that way, the more they will dig in their heels and the more we focus on the negatives and the more discontent grows. When, in contrast, we just love them, we dwell on the 80%, we celebrate the 80%, then we get that little marginal gift that as a, as a special, well, gift of charity that's uh, given to us as a result of choosing to see the good. 
Wow. I'm thinking about how this is so true in my own life and how when my, my husband and I were first married, we've been married for three years and it's a remarriage for me and, and his first marriage. And I had been alone for about five years before we were married and and he had been single his whole life. So yeah, we we pretty much had our ways of doing things. And probably the first month of marriage, I remember walking into the kitchen and seeing this big puddle of water on the floor. And I was like, what is this? And after some investigating, I realized he had washed his dish and there was this huge puddle. Well, before I had like chastised him for not washing his dish. So he had washed his dish, but he didn't do it right, Wally. And so it happens again a few days later. There's this puddle of water on the floor. And by this point, I'm <clears throat> I'm getting a little bit ticked. And so I go out to find him and tell him how he's done this wrong. Well, the problem was is that he was mowing our lawn in the 114 degree Arizona heat. And I couldn't I couldn't chastise him right then. So I had to wait till he came inside. <laughs> Thankfully, in the half hour that it took him to mow our lawn, I, I I took a step back. You know, as a side note to that, in our three years of marriage, the water at the sink has much diminished. When we can be patient, when I can be patient and um, not just want to fix my partner, but but love the fact that he's washing his dish and love the fact that he is serving our family and mowing the lawn, um, the more I appreciate and show gratitude for that the better I feel about our relationship and the more it seems that he wants to do for our family when I'm showing gratitude. Ooh, there you go. There, there's that growth that comes when both people choose to dwell on the good. And yet each of us is programmed with all these thousands of little preferences and they bump into each other a lot in marriage. And it's everything from, you know, what kind of milk you get to, you know, how you store things in the pantry. And um, we just get so irritated that our partner doesn't do it the right way. And uh, wow, what a what a shame that we think that way. There's, there's another thing that I think you'll find interesting, Emily, which is what Sandra Murray found in her research. She found that in the healthiest marriages that each partner saw in the other some qualities that nobody else saw in that person, their, their lifelong family, their best friends, they saw qualities that nobody else saw, and she calls them positive illusions, positive illusions on the assumption that they're not actually real, but that's uh, what people tend to see when they choose to think positively. But notice that people see positive illusions when they're in the healthiest relationships. Now, my view is different from that. If I take a spiritual perspective on that, I would say that when we choose to look for the good, we see what God sees. We see stuff that maybe nobody else sees because they haven't paid the price to see it. We um, see with kindness and pure knowledge. We see beyond the ordinary behaviors and attitudes and, and appearances, and we, we see the heart of the person. And we love that about them because they have, in the course of marriage, opened their heart to us, and we choose to remember that even in times of irritation. Mm. Oh, I love that. And I'm also thinking about, because you and I have kind of discussed these principles ahead of time, <laughs> so I know what's coming up, but I'm thinking about how that relates to other principles. Um, they all kind of, they influence each other maybe. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah, they really do. Uh, they do influence each other significantly. So nurture is really a nice companion to understanding. 
Um, you, you nurture, you care about, you value, but you also show compassion. You know, we we talked about all those many, many ways that we are different, the, all the rules that we use to govern our lives. And we sometimes take it personally when our partner doesn't think our way is the best way. And, um, and we think, what, you think I'm irrational? You think I was raised by, by wolves? What? Well, how come you don't respect the way I do things? You know, like, for instance, washing a dish, thinking to wash it, and then thinking to manage the water associated with washing it. You know, you can be really irritated about that, huh? Mm-hmm. <laughs> or you can be gratefully wash the dish. And, and um, as you showed appreciation, then um, you experience progress. But I, but I, I have a favorite story about understanding. It's uh, a story I think you know about Steve Covey. And the time came when he and Sandra needed to buy a new fridge. So Steve did what guys like him tend to do, which is he went to Consumer Reports and looked carefully at what kind of fridge they needed and then what the highest rated fridges were. And he uh, went to Sandra and said, uh, let's, let's go to this place because they have this kind of fridge and that's the best kind. And Sandra resisted. She chafed. She said, I, I actually... Steve, I'd like a Frigidaire. I think a Frigidaire is what we need. And and I'm confident that Steve was thinking, Sandra, are are you, now he wouldn't say it this way, but are you dumb? Are you not paying attention? <laughs> do, you, do you not read the consumer's report? I mean, why do you want a Frigidaire? That is not our best choice. And somehow the decision didn't get made right away and they had time when they were off. Uh, on a relaxing time in a vacation setting. And they were just sitting on the beach chatting. And um, and Sandra just started talking about some of her recollections from childhood, just started kind of wandering through the landscape of her memory. And, and she said, Steve, I remember when I was a little girl and uh, growing up in the Depression, we didn't have much. And um, my dad was always worried about providing for us. He he worried that we wouldn't have enough to to eat and enough to, to, to provide just the basics of life. And I remember he was a school teacher, she she told Stephen, and and um and it wasn't paying the bills. So he also decided to open an appliance business. He opened this business and he tried to stock the business, but most of the companies wanted him to pay in advance for inventory. There was one company that allowed him to order the inventory and then pay for it when he sold it. Would you like to guess, Emily, which company that was? Mm, I'm guessing it was Frigidaire. Yeah, yeah. It was um, Frigidaire. And so Frigidaire allowed him to order the inventory and he would sell it. And, and, and Sandra remembered with Stephen, she said, I remember how dad would, would sit after we'd had dinner and say, you know, kids, I am so grateful to the Frigidaire company that they trusted us that much. I'm so grateful to them. So hidden deep in Sandra's programming was this loyalty to Frigidaire, uh, a, a deep and abiding loyalty. Does it make sense? Well, it depends. If you hear Sandra's story, it makes perfect sense. If you read Consumer Reports, you'll never know the story. So mm. when I think of understanding, I think about really tuning in to the other person, really listening to them. Does that make sense, Emily? It does. And I'm thinking about how sometimes I'm not even aware for myself 
what that piece is, like the Frigidaire piece, doesn't sound like in that moment she was thinking, well, Stephen, the Frigidaire company is important to me because of this reason. She didn't articulate that. That is the beautiful thing about a marriage. Exactly. You know, when when we uh, are in the midst of this focused discussion on appliances, we may not even remember that. And uh, it's only when we are patient and non-defensive that we can get there. And so very often our response to what we consider to be an irrational statement by our spouse is to say, wow, you haven't really been paying attention, have you? And, and that, of course, creates more defensiveness. In contrast, what if we say, huh, it sounds like Frigidaires are really important to you, Sandra. I'd really love to understand that. It could lead, at least eventually, to the conversation they need to have. Yeah, and, and so that, that is the beauty, that, that our, our marriages can help us discover these things about ourselves, is what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. When we are not attacking, then we can open ourselves up to um, understanding each other and really making shared decisions that we both feel good about. And my favorite on, on that subject of understanding is a guy named Haim Gannat. His famous book is Between Parent and Child. So it's a parenting book. But he's so good at compassion. Instead of, instead of accusing and defending and attacking, it was really about understanding. And I think he was right. Now, in, in another book, um, John Gottman has talked about, about bids for connection. Bids for connection. So... So often the way we approach each other is really an attempt to say, I'd love to have you involved in my life. Will you take part in a way that's comfortable for me? We make those bids for connection without even realizing it. And then we also do one of three things without even thinking about it, which is sometimes we turn against or we turn away. And in an ideal world, we turn toward. And so um, Mm. I know we can think of, different examples, you know that one of my favorites is um, when I go to Nancy and say, hey, Nancy, how would you like to go with me to Home Depot and and and, and get some grabber screws and caress some hardwood? And um, <laughs> if Nancy were not the kind, gentle person she is, she would probably say, Holly, why are you so thoughtless? Why are you so insensitive? That's not where I dream of going. I don't want to go to Home Depot with you. That would be turning against, wouldn't it? That would be turning against. That would be Mm -hmm. saying, wow, you are not even thinking. Turning away might be, oh, I don't know, Wally. Let me think about it. I'm kind of busy. Let me think about it. It's just kind of a non-answer. But then there's a third option, which might be um, turning toward. Nancy might say, Wally, (laughs) some of your best experiences in life have been at Home Depot, haven't they? Now, see, that's understanding, isn't it? (laughs) Um, She doesn't have to agree with me, and she might think I'm absolutely bonkers, but she can understand. She can say, yeah, yeah, you you love Home Depot. Now, let's note that turning toward doesn't mean that she necessarily goes. Nancy might say, you know, Wally, I love doing things with you, but if it's okay, I'd rather wait until we can do this together or that together. Or... She might say, um, yeah, I think I have some time this evening. I'd be glad to go with you. Uh, and maybe also you can help me with a couple of projects I'm working on. Now, it's not, it's not like we're trading, trading favors, but it's that general openness that says, yeah, we're both interested in helping each other. Mm. So 
fairly often. In fact, just the other day, Nancy went with me to Home Depot, and she did not have the same peak experience that I had there. But but Nancy is good company, and she went for uh, for the companionship, not for the hardwoods. Um, so so turning toward does not necessarily mean we do just what the person seems to prefer, but it means we appreciate its importance to them. Turning towards opening our soul to them and their preferences, that's understanding. Mm. Mm-hmm. So again, this is kind of where I see it. That's It's very akin to nurturing. As you're investing in the relationship, there's a lot of overlap between all these principles is just kind of what I'm what I'm getting a sense of. Absolutely. You're you're exactly right. These are these are good companions. One of the best ways to nurture is to understand. Mm-hmm. And um understanding grows as we nurture. So they really are companion processes. I love that. Yeah. Turning against, turning away, and turning toward. Yes. So those are the, the three things to kind of as as I'm thinking about my behavior and how I'm approaching different situations, I can think about okay, what would what would a turning toward behavior be in this situation? And like you said, not just necessarily always doing the thing, um, but being open to being open to being influenced. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah, you said it. Okay. Yeah, and and what Gutman observes is that we very often um, our companions very often make bids for connection that we don't even notice. They're saying, in a sense, I really love to have you be a part of my life. And we think of it as some kind of request or demand instead of an invitation. Mm, Okay. All right. So we have happiness, commit, nurture, understand. What is the next principle? You know, some people would expect that one of the key principles would be to communicate. And um, I think what the research says about communication is that communication happens well when our hearts are right, but it is not its own process. Um, some of my colleagues and I chose to talk about the the idea of solve rather than communicate. It's about solving problems, and 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 it doesn't work at all, and it certainly doesn't work well um, unless we have nurture and understand in place. I mean, in their absence, it doesn't happen at all. And um, it, when when not working right, it may happen a little. But nurture and understand set the stage for solving. Um, we tend to want to solve problems by uh, changing our partner. We want to solve problems by telling him or her what uh, that person needs to do. But we've already talked about acceptance, haven't we? Acceptance about accepting and valuing that person. So sometimes what has to happen is we um, change our um, expectations. We change the way we interact with that person. We we adjust expectations so that it's more sensitive to the other person and the way they like to be in, a, in the relationship. Um, I don't know if you read years ago the story about Lola Walters. It was uh, told and uh, anyway retold by Joe Christensen. He told about uh, Lola who read in the magazine that you ought to every once in a while sit down with your spouse and, and you ought to share five things that bother you about them so that you can both make adjustments so uh, Lola approached her husband and said, how about if we um, sit down and talk about some of those discontents? And they set a time. They sat down together at the appointed time. And, and uh, he said, why don't you go first? And she said, well, okay, okay, I've got my list here. And she said, first off, it makes me crazy that you peel your grapefruit. 
Nobody peels grapefruits. You're supposed to slice them. Don't you know that? That's the right way to eat a grapefruit is to slice it and use the special little spoon. And he's kind of shocked, like, wow, wow, you've got a lot of feeling about this. And she did. It was kind of like <laughs> one of those thousands of little rules we have about how the world operates and how things should be done. And 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 she really let him have it. And and then in the spirit of fairness, she said, okay. She said, now it's your turn. You tell me one of the things from your list that you don't like about me. And uh, he looked at her and kind of hemmed and hawed and he said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I can't think of anything I don't like about you, dear. And she gasped and realized the foolishness of what she was doing. She was turning little tiny preferences into some kind of eternal laws. This is how you do grapefruits. So when it comes to solving problems, part of the job is to figure out where our grapefruit rules are, where we've been imposing expectations on each other. And um, there are a lot of processes we go through to, to really um, solve problems. But when we are nurturing, when we are understanding, then it's a much more simple process for getting to solutions. Don't you think? Yes, I do think. And I also want to play devil's advocate for a second, if that's okay. Sure. So I think that some of our listeners may say, but Wally, my marriage, we, we have some real problems. These are irreconcilable differences that are not going anywhere. And we're really struggling. What do you say to couples who just really feel their problems overshadow everything else? Does this approach you're talking about really work in those situations too? The, the research says that in every relationship, there are unresolvable differences. But we can, as Gottman suggests, start a dialogue with our unresolvable differences. We can start to have a conversation about them. Some things are not going away. In fact, my, my experience, Emily, is that every relationship over time discovers that there are things that are irritating and they are not going away. And that's the point at which some people throw in the towel. That's the point at which some people get really angry and feel cheated and feel like they were they uh, were sold a bill of goods. Um, but it's also the place where some people say, you know what, this is my opportunity for growth. This is where, in, in fact, um, there are a couple of guys, Christensen and Jacobson, who, who wrote a book called Reconcilable Differences. And they said the key process in marriage is not change, but acceptance. Now, clearly, there is a role for change. There's a role for understanding and adapting and making making some modifications to be sensitive to each other. But we sometimes, especially, I think, as modern Americans, we neglect the role of acceptance, of, of saying, you know what? He has always had that preference. We've, we'll probably always have that difference, and that's okay. Uh, I think of the the couple who at their 50th wedding anniversary, somebody somebody said, what's the key to your success? And she said, when we got married, I uh, decided that for the sake of our relationship, I would forgive him of 10 things. And somebody said, oh, good, what are the 10? And she said, well, the truth is that I never got around to listing the 10, but every, every time he did something that made me hopping mad, I said to myself, well, it's a good thing for him, that's one of the 10. Now that's what I call pre-forgiveness. Now, our, this discussion, um, uh, at least what I'm saying is a little bit unbalanced. There is a place for change. It is important. 
but it tends to be much, much, much smaller than the place for acceptance and nurture and love. So I'd say we shouldn't even attempt change until we're really feeling loving and caring and, and have built some closeness in our relationship. But the place for change is after we've got some of that settled in place. And then uh, change will come much more naturally, much more easily. But it will still take time. And there will still be unresolvable differences. Why is it that the person who, in, in, like in our case, you know, I'm, I'm an incurable extrovert. I really love being around people. Nancy is an incurable introvert who really will, likes to find time to be peaceful and quiet. And so those two, we will bump into each other. And uh, we will even, as this morning, have discussions about, not an unkind discussion, but about my being more sensitive to her need for, um, for peace and her being sensitive to, um, to, to my need to connect with people. So um, we, we, in fact, are working on solving a problem. But there wasn't a hint of argument. There were no bad feelings. Because after almost 50 years of marriage, we, can, we have learned to say, yeah, we're different. Isn't it weird? Isn't it weird how different we are? And it's okay. It's okay. We bring different strengths. So um, discussions that help us find solutions are vital. But they are, um, they're the younger brother to the leading process of nurturing and understanding. When that's in place, I think solving happens more naturally. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense to me that if uh, if our hearts are right and we've sort of prepped the, the soil properly with all of these other things, understanding, nurturing, commitment, um, it's much easier to solve those real problems is what I'm hearing you say. Yes, absolutely. Okay. And, and one expression of that, um, again, it doesn't sound like solve, but I think it really is. Um, it's when the prophet Joseph Smith said, when people, when persons manifest the least kindness and love to me, oh, what power it has over my mind. Well, the opposite course, which we might say is criticism or challenging or pushing, condemning, the opposite course has the tendency to harrow up all the harsh feelings and depress the human mind. So, uh, you know, that's, there's lots more we can learn from books like The Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work about solving problems. But um, irritation is not the key to change. Uh, rather, charity is. When we love each other, we start adapting to help each other. That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Is there anything else you want to say in that vein of the principle of solve? Oh, there's a lot more. But I, I would refer people to... Um, whole books where it talks about, you know, like especially Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. That's one that can help a person say, okay, uh, I can I can identify our differences. I can start a dialogue with them and I can also be patient and accept that some things are a part of any human relationship. Okay. And we'll put links to those resources in the show notes for anyone who's interested in reading more on Gottman's work. Great. Great. Um, okay. So is are we coming up on a final principle? A final principle. Um, some research has found that when people have a common cause, when they serve together, like for instance, Blaine Fowers tells about a couple he was working with in therapy, and he just wasn't making progress, and they weren't solving their problems. And finally, this couple named Wendy and Al, they they decided, hey, you know what? 
we ought to start a project together. And they happened to be interested in collecting and sharing Native American art. And when they uh, came back to end their therapeutic relationship and presumably to split, they were working great and being happy, not because all their marital problems were solved, but they found a common cause. They found something they both cared about deeply, and they invested in that. So sometimes we uh, forget that maybe serving, finding a cause, maybe that's uh, maybe that's helping in the neighborhood, maybe that's uh, looking after widows, maybe that's um, looking after refugee families. Whatever it is, when we can share share that common cause, it makes a big difference. Hmm. Yeah, I can see how when you when you're really feeling like we're on the same team, uh, yeah, that that brings you together, that draws you together, and and binds you and bonds you in ways that uh, you don't have if you're not taking that approach. Yes, for sure. Yeah, so those are I think Emily are the six principles, and we've I think shared quite a few ideas, and there's so many more that people can discover as they read good books, good resources on the subject. I would mention that as a person wants to read more, there's some resources we've created in in university extension that often are free and available to um, to listeners. So um, marriage can be uh, this joyous journey where we at when when fall comes, we look in the yard and say, "Oh my, look at that fresh vine ripened tomatoes and and look at the beautiful flowers and we've enjoyed the strawberries. Uh, that's kind of what we're looking for in a relationship, isn't it? A, mm-hmm. a glorious harvest as a result of that, that um, sometimes painful, but that consistent work over time that got us to this glorious harvest. So worthwhile. So worthwhile. Thank you, Wally. I appreciate all of your thoughts and insights on this as, as I'm in the trenches. And it's, it's just beautiful that we can be learning and growing in, in this together. We hope you enjoyed this episode with Dr. Wally on a fresh view of gospel living. I have a favor to ask. If you love this podcast, remember to subscribe to it. And if you feel called, please leave us a review and share it with a loved one. Reviews really matter because they help us spread the word about this project. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, take care.